Well, good evening. How you doing? Great day out there. Good to be back. Uh, we're going to be continuing on our series that we've been in now the, called The Way. And if you're new here at Rocky Peak, a special welcome to you. My name is Pastor Mike, and inside your program is a white message note sheet that'll help you follow along during this time of teaching. So I encourage you to take that out. It's good to see some of you back who were in Mexico last week. Missed you from our traditional spots. Mark, it's good to see you on the aisle again there. It's, uh, and uh, I'm trying to see, uh, 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 Don, yeah, he's missing still. Okay, well, that's so good. All right. Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll go into our time of teaching. Father, thank you so much for this chance to come and to seek you together. Lord, we think of your word that says that you are looking for worshipers who will worship you in spirit and in truth. And we want to be that church, God, that, that runs after you, that, that worships you, that knows you in spirit and in truth. And so as we come to your word today, we pray that you would unpack it, unfold it for us, I pray, God, that you just uh, give me a lot of freedom as I teach. I pray that we would all have ears to hear and that we'd be able to circle around you and your words today and just to, to hear uh, and to be impacted by the message you have for us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Our story starts out today. He was, uh, it was about lunchtime. Um, he was, it was a hot day, and he was sitting uh, under the awning of his large Bedouin tent, and, uh, and so he never saw it happen. He never saw it coming. He, he never saw that day would be the day it would happen. It was always that way. It always took him by surprise. It been about 25 years since it had happened the very first time, um, but he never got used to it, those times when God would show up in his life. And, uh, and I'm not talking metaphorically. I'm not talking spiritually. I'm talking about physically show up in his life. And that day, he's sitting there in his son's awning, trying to keep cool. He looks out, and he sees in the distance the three travelers coming his way. He doesn't really, doesn't really know who they are at first. As they get closer, we don't know exactly when, but it kicks in. These are not your ordinary travelers. And the closer they get, he, he runs to meet them. He greets them. He invites them to stay for dinner. He sends, out the, uh, he sends word to the servants that we need a top-flight meal. And uh, pretty soon, the meal is prepared, and they're all there, and he serves them. And after dinner, while they're eating, the one, the one that he knew was the Lord, um, the one spoke to him and said, uh, talked to him about, a little about his future, things that are going to happen next year. It wasn't the first time they talked about that. After dinner, the three men got up to leave, and they were walking out. Abraham walked them back out to the road. And when they got back out to the road, they stopped there, and the Lord pulled them aside. He said, I... I need to tell you why I've come. I, I didn't want to just talk to you about your family and what's going to happen in the future, but um, we're actually on a reconnaissance mission. And uh, I've got these two uh, uh, mysterious travelers with me. When we leave here, I'm sending them down to the plains. It's 25, 30 miles away. You can see it in the distance. There's some cities there. And the word on the street is, is that these cities are really over the edge. The, the evil there is out of control. And I'm sending them down to check it out and then deal appropriately with whatever they find. And, of course, the reason he's, he's telling Abraham, his friend Abraham, is because Abraham has a, a nephew he's very close to. His name's Lot. He's raised Lot ever since he was a boy. When his, when his brother uh, Nahor died, he, he took him in, and he's part of his family. Now Lot's an old, is a, a grown man. He's got children, grown children of his own. He's living down in this this ancient town that we know in Hebrew as Saddam. We call it Sodom. And, uh, and so that's why he's telling him. He's giving him a heads up that there could be bad times ahead. And so Abraham puts two and two together, and it doesn't take much to know this is not good. And so he goes right into his, his best Middle Eastern negotiating mode. And with all the respect in the world, he begins to say, now, could you tell me more about this? Does that really seem like the right thing to do? I mean, like, like what if there's like 50 people there that are just still good people that have not compromised. If there's like 50 people, are you going to wipe out the whole city if there's 50 people there? Um, that just doesn't really seem fair. And then he asks this great question. It's a question I'm sure you've asked in your life. I know I've asked it in my life many times. I'm sure every person who's ever lived at some point in their life has asked this question in one way or another. And the way that the question was, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Well, today we're continuing this series uh, that we've been in now for a couple months uh, called The Way. 
It's a, uh, it's a series on the, the life and uh, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul. And if you're new here at Rocky Peak, you're just joining us, uh, what we're doing is uh, we're coming alongside of him and letting him mentor us week by week and what it means to be a Christ follower, what it means to be part of this ancient movement in the early church that Jesus started that was, that was called, once called The Way. And, and our strategy every week is we start off every week by looking at one of his uh, longest and most famous letters, his letter to the church at Rome, and then we use it as a launching off point, a, a gateway, an entryway into the rest of his life and writings. And today we come to chapter 3. Now, if you've been here in the last few weeks, you kind of know the storyline that the opening chapters of Romans, the first four chapters are like a mini-series. We're going to break down this whole book as we go through into like three or four mini-series. And the first mini-series, we're calling it Fallen and Forgiven because it's really the story of the human race, how we fell away from God, and then what God has done to bring us back and to forgive us, so fallen and forgiven. And in this opening section, what the Apostle Paul is doing is bringing an indictment against the human race. Um, it's like a court case. And so in chapter 1, he brings the indictment against what we've called the wild kids of the race. In chapter 2, in the beginning, he, he brings an indictment against what we're calling, what we call the good kids of the race, kind of the, the moral high roaders. The last week, we looked at the end of chapter 2, the second half, where he brings his indictment against the special kids of the race, the Jewish race, the chosen uh, children. And so today, he's ready to go into chapter 3, and it's time for him to begin to wrap up this court case and bring it to the close, you know, uh, kind of picture, you know, law and order or whatever, the closing argument, you know. He's ready to wrap it up, but before he does that, there's some, uh, there's some Jewish objections and questions that always get raised every time he teaches on the fallenness of the human race. Every time he teaches this, wherever he goes, the Jewish people in the audience always have a hard time with this because it raises questions like, well, if we're fallen like the rest of the world, what are you saying? Is there no advantage in being a Jew? I mean, was, it was, really, was there no advantage to, to being part of the chosen race? I mean, if we're all equally fallen, is there no advantage? Uh, and what are you saying, Paul? God made all these amazing promises to our forefathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and to, to, to David and all these, and are, are all those, I know we've messed up, okay, I'll admit it, we've messed up as a race, but are you saying that all those promises are now null and void? Is he done with us? And so wherever Paul would teach on the fallenness of the human race, the Jews in the crowd would always have problems with this, like what are you saying? And so before he brings his court case to a close today, he's going to deal with some of the most common objections, uh, questions that always come up in the crowd. So it's kind of a sidebar again. We're going to stop the court case, go do a sidebar with some of the people in the crowd, then we're going to come back and finish the court case today, okay? So chapter 3, and we'll look at verse, uh, start at verse 1. You'll notice there on your note sheet that there's a couple sections. And so the first section is called Q&A, Three Jewish Questions. That covers the first uh, eight verses. And then the second section we'll be going into uh, is where he brings his cl Paul's closing argument. It's called Law, Law and Order, Paul's Closing Argument. All right? So let's go in uh, Q&A, Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. So, so here we go. So Paul says, so what advantage then, someone in the crowd says, well, what advantage then is there in, in being a Jew? Um, or what value is there in circumcision? You just said in the end of chapter 2 that being, having a relationship with God, as we saw last week, it's more than ritual. It's more than being born in the right family. It's more than having the word of God. It's more than being circumcised. Remember, we saw it's more than that. So is there any advantage then? Like, what's the advantage? Why not just be a Gentile then? You know, what's the advantage? And he says, well, much in every way. And, and it's really funny because what he's going to do is he's going to start to lay out the advantages of the Jewish race, the, the tremendous advantage of being born into a Jewish family. But the funny thing is, it's just like you and I, he's going to get Alzheimer's disease. And he's going to forget what he's saying and get distracted. So he's saying, well, first of all, and then he's going to forget the rest of them, and then he'll come back in chapter 9 and pick it up again, all right? So, so he says... Um, so what's the advantage in being a Jew? Verse 2, well, much in, in every way. First of all, so here's the first thing, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. 
This is an amazing advantage. If you were born into a Jewish family, what an advantage. The rest of the world is trying to figure out who God is. The rest of the world is trying to figure out how do you live life? What's the best way to live life? And if you're born into a Jewish family, you've been given the very words of God, the Old Testament. And so you know what God's like. You know the way we're supposed to live. You know how life is designed to work. What a tremendous advantage. Of course, the, the downside of this, as we saw last week, is though the Jews had this advantage, because they're fallen like the rest of us, they didn't follow the advantage. And so they, they had the word, they didn't keep the word. So it's not enough to save you, but it was a tremendous advantage. Okay? So there in your, your note sheet, you have question number one. <coughs> question number one, is there any advantage to being the Jew? Did you fill that in already? Good, okay, you're way ahead of me. And so, that this is, so he starts saying, yeah, there is advantage, a lot of advantages. Let me tell you one of them, okay? And the second question that tends to come up whenever he would teach is, is God through with the Jews? Is he finished with us? You've, you've made a great case, Paul, in chapter 2, that, that we have not obeyed, we've not followed, we've been hypocritical. And so is he through with us? Are the, all his promises to the Jewish race null and void? And so let's see what he says in verses uh, 3 and 4. He says, um, well, what if some didn't have faith? What if some of the Jews didn't have faith? They weren't faithful. Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? You know, when we're unfaithful, does that nullify a promise God makes? Then he says, uh, well, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, even when we're faithless, God's always going to do what he says. You know, whether it's for good or for evil, but he's always going to keep his word. It's not going to be based on us. And so even though they're faithless, God will remain faithful. And, uh, and he quotes Psalm 51, as it's written in Psalm 51, so that you, God, may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. And so God's always going to do the right thing, regardless of what we do. He made promises to the Jewish race. Those promises are still in effect. He'll get back to it in chapter 9. Okay, now the third question is... <coughs> Third question, is it fair for God to judge us? Is that really fair? Now, this is kind of a weird question. And this is, this is just an example to show how convoluted we could get as human beings when we get into spiritual matters, how much we can twist the word of God. But this, would, this was uh, what would ha often happen when Paul would teach. There would be some Jews in the crowd who would say, no, wait a second, Paul. Okay, we, we get this. We as Jewish race, we have failed. Okay, that's it. But you've just made the point that even though we fail, God is always going to do the right thing. And so really, in a sense, the worse we are, the better he looks. And so is it really fair for God to judge us when we're making him look so good? Is this kind of the end justifying the means? You'll see these kind of little things throughout Romans, kind of faulty reasoning. And so uh, let's look and see what he says. Verse 5 through 8. He says, but if our unrighteousness kind of are the Jewish race, of our unrighteousness, it brings out God's righteousness more clearly. What shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? He's, I'm using a human argument, uh, human as, a, as in stupid. <laughs> uh, verse 6, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? He says, just stop and think about it. If that were true, that, that every time we did something stupid, it made God look good, so he never held us accountable for doing something stupid or wrong, that he could never judge the world, right? And so he said, and that's one of the most basic foundational truths we're going to be looking at today, is that God is the judge of all the earth, right? And that's one of the most basic truths of the Bible, that you and I, every one of us, will one day have to stand before God and give an account for our life. He is the judge of all the earth. So Paul says, if that were true, how could, Paul, how could uh, God judge the earth? That would nullify this basic principle. See, when anyone ever comes to you and comes with a, a new teaching about God or relationship that is at variance and nullifies one of the basic truths of the Bible, you always know it's off base, right? So that's, so that's the lesson there. So he says, well, someone might argue, Verse 7, as we'll see, this is not just hypothetical. He actually faced people like this. Someone might argue, well, if my falsehood, in other words, my lack of faithfulness, that's what he's saying, my falsehood, my lack of faithfulness, if it enhances God's truthfulness and so incre increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, now catch this, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, so people, wherever Paul would go, people would always twist his teaching. In fact, we'll see this throughout the book of Romans. 
hey, you'll see it in chapter 6. Well, should we just, if, if we're forgiven, should we just keep on sinning so grace may increase? You know, we'll see it throughout the book. Um, but this was, they were actually saying this. Why not say, verse 8, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Okay? He says their condemnation is, uh, is deserved. I mean, they're, they're going to they're get what they deserve. Right? So, okay, so, so he's kind of done this sidebar here. The questions that come up whenever he teaches, Jewish people in the audience are like, wait a second, but is, is, is there any advantage of being a Jew? Are you saying God's done with us? And then this kind of weirdo one, the third question, right? This is come, would come up. Okay, so he's dealt with the questions. Now he's going to move on to the closing argument. This is what he's been waiting for. Now, you know how this works. You've, you've all seen, probably, any, of you, any of you Law & Order fans? I don't see that I'm talking to here. Law & Order, that's it? That's it. Anyone, not wanna, anyone really a fan but just not admitting it? Yeah, okay, I'm a Law & Order fan. Okay, so you've seen Law & Order, you've seen a court, you drama. You know how this works, right? You, you, pre- you present the evidence, you go at it, you do all your stuff. And, all, and then the last part comes where, where the, uh, the prosecuting attorney, he gets up and he, well, both sides do this, but let's take Paul, he's a prosecuting attorney for God here. So, so he gets up and he makes his final argument. He takes all the evidence, he, the best evidence. He takes his top logic to show and he, he just kind of brings it together and usually the most cr- carefully crafted worded speech and he just wows the jury, Right, and he brings it to he bring, brings it on home to when you get done. It's like, uh, yeah, hang them, you know. It's like whatever. So, okay, so we're entering into Paul's uh, closing argument here, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to turn to his Bible for the closing argument. He's going to go back to the Jewish scriptures, the very scriptures that the Jews in the crowd, who are his hardest sell on this. The very scriptures that the Jews trust their relationship with God. We've got the Bible, therefore we're in. He's going to go back to those very scriptures and say, no, you're not. We are all fallen. doesn't matter whether you're a wild child, a good kid, or you're in the special race. You are all fallen. We're all condemned before. And so he's going, to, he's going to kind of spell this out for us. So let's see how it goes. So he starts here in verse 9. And he says, well, what shall we conclude then? In other words, uh, I've been arguing for three chapters now. I've been making my case for three chapters. What's the conclusion are we, are we Jews, he's talking, are we Jews any better than the Gentiles? Not at all. We have already made the charge, and there's in chapter 2, chapters 1 and 2, we've all made, already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, doesn't matter, wild child, good kids, special kids, doesn't make it, we've all, they're all under sin, we're under the bondage of sin. And as it's written, and now he's going to begin to string together this long, impressive final quote uh, section, and these quotes come from a variety of passages in your Old Testament. And I'm not going to take the time to go through and just, okay, this one's from here. This one. You can tell in the margins of your Bible at the end of each quote. It'll tell you a little letter. It'll tell you where that quote's from if you're, you're interested. And it's interesting. In their original context, some of these quotes actually refer to Gentile nations that are kind of uh, rebelling against God. Some refer to Jewish people who are not following God. But Paul just kind of puts them all together in this long string of, uh, of, of powerful language. And as we go through it, you'll notice that they go from the big picture accusations of the race to very specific. So he's going to start off with big, broad statements about how we're all fallen, uh, quotes from the Old Testament. But then it's going to get very narrow, and he's going to begin to talk about how sin works itself out in our life in the specific parts of our bodies. So he's going to talk about how our mouth, our tongue, our lips, our throat, our uh, feet, our eyes. And he's going to begin to talk about how even in our physical bodies, we are, our bodies are become slaves to sin, which sets us up for chapter 6 when he's going to talk about give your bodies back to God so that now your body can be used for God again, you see? So here we go in, um, in verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no exceptions, in the human race, your neighbor, your kids, your spouse, you, the politicians, the athletes, the entertainers, the rich, the poor, the high, the low, the powerful, the powerless. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter black, white, yellow, where you're born, what time in history you're born. There are no exceptions. There's no one righteous. And we'll talk more about that later. What does that mean to be righteous? Not even one. 
There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. You go, well, I sought God. Yeah, well, if you sought God at some point in your life, let me tell you something. It's because he was seeking you first, okay? Because the natural, the natural condition of the human race is, I got it wired, <laughs> right? I don't need you. And so he says, all, um, all, have, all have turned away. No, it's no exceptions. They have together become worthless. Wow, Paul, could you go easy on us? Um, there is no one who does good, not even one, which doesn't mean there's nothing good ever done in humanity, but the, the, the tenor of your life, you know, the, the, the kind of a, from the inside out. Um, there are throats. Now, here he begins to get very specific and talk about parts of our body. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Remember Proverbs says, Proverbs says, the, the tongue has the power of life and death. He says, look at this race and how we use our tongue. Remember what James says? We use it to praise God and then curse our brothers. This should not be sweet water and salt water coming from the same spring. Remember that? He says, the poison of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Think of your workplace. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. There's a violence in the human race. If you've ever studied the history of the world, I cannot believe it. I've been doing so much reading the last few uh, two years in ancient history, going back Greek and Roman history, uh, you know, four to five hundred before, years before the time of Christ and up to several hundred years after. You know what struck me most is the violence of the human race. And it was so great because they lived in a time where they didn't have to be politically correct. So they just tell it like it is. They don't soft soap it. And you see the violence of the human race, this lust for power and control that is on the, on the page of every era and every page of history. It's amazing. I just it's What an education it's been for me to get out of our current era and to go back and to read Thucydides and read Herodotus and read these uh, uh, Cicero and read these ancient times that just describe this is the way it was and this is what happened with no agenda, you know, and just read the violence of the human race. And you think of our own day, and you realize that more people have been murdered through war in our own last hundred years than any time in the history of the world. And, he says, and so he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The path of peace they do not know. And here's the, the bottom line. Here's the core issue. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Remember back in Romans 1, the wrath of God's being poured out against the race because they knew what, who God was. They didn't want to hear it and went their own way. There's no fear of God. The fear of God's a, a Bible way of saying there's no respect or honor for letting God be God in our lives. Okay, so now he says, he wraps it up, he says, now, now we know. Now we know. He says, at this point in history, now it's become clear. It wasn't clear before this, but now at this point in history, Apostle Paul, it has become clear that whatever the law says, Jews in the audience, Jews in the audience who base your relationship on the law, that you trust that you have a relationship with God, he's still very much, this whole passage is always this Jewish reader at the back of his mind because they're the toughest sell this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, in other words, to the Jew, why? So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. As we'll see later on, the law was never given to us in order so that we could make a case before the court of heaven. I have lived up to it. I, am, I should be let in. I have done the right thing. The law was given to strict for us to understand how messed up we are. It is the straight edge that puts up to our life the ruler that shows how crooked we are. And that's why God gave it. And so he says, uh, that's why the law was given. Verse 20, therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, it's through the law we become conscious of sin. And so Paul finishes his closing argument. He walks back to the seat he sits down and he leaves us there before the judgment of God, hopeless, helpless, speechless, awaiting our final sentence. And, and so next time we're together, we get to see what happens in that courtroom. And what happens throws everyone a curve in human history.
What happens, I wish we could see it for the first time, what happens in that courtroom, if you've never seen this episode of Law and Order, (laughs) what happens in that courtroom takes your breath away if you've never seen it before. All right, now, here's what I want to do today, though. Today, I want to focus on a couple vital truths that flow out of this, kind of what I'm calling big picture truths about how life works, about who God is, about who we are, how our relationship works, how life works, that are just so foundational, not only for our relationship with God, but for all of culture and society. The implications of these are huge that we're going to be talking about. And there are two things that Paul teaches, and they're, so they're on your note sheet. Let's jump in. And number one, So you have a section called, see it, the verdict, two vital big picture truths. Number one, the first thing that jumps out is that there's something seriously wrong with us. There's something seriously wrong with us. We are fundamentally flawed at the core. That the human race, there's something terribly wrong with us. It's There's something broken. There's something flawed. It's not like a minor superficial, let's fix it up with a class or two. This is something really broken. Okay, seriously wrong. Now, um, this obviously flies in the face of the current opinion of our culture today, doesn't it? We live in a culture today that believes exactly the opposite. We live in a culture today where the prevailing common view is that, that we as a race are basically good. That the problem with the human race is not the human race. The problem is our environment. So, so the problem is um, your parents, you know. Or if you're parents, you are the problem. Um, uh, the, the problem is uh, the government. The problem is education. The problem is religion. The problem is a lack of government subsidy. Uh, the, the problem is uh, uh, you were just raised the wrong way or raised on the wrong side of the tracks or that you were, had some bad life experiences early on. That is the problem of the human race. And so if we could take the human race and we could put them in the right environment with the right education and the right parenting, that, that all the problems of the human race would go away because the problems of the human race are not about us. The problems of the human race are about our environment. Now, you follow me on this? Okay, this is the prevailing view. Of the, and can I tell you something? This is one of the major reasons our culture is so messed up today. Because if you believe that the human race is basically good, it affects everything. You do education different. You do law courts different. You do uh, 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 subsidy for the poor different. You do welfare. Di- everything changes. If you, you know, th- This is a fundamental worldview issue. Is the human race basically good or is there something wrong with it? And it affects everything in all of human society. So our current culture kind of believes it. And the Apostle Paul comes along and says, actually, uh, there's some truth to that. There's no question that our environment affects who we are, right? It is a significant influence, no question. But Paul says there's something bigger. That when we rebelled as a race so long ago the garden, Something broke in the human heart. Something broke at a core level. We are broken, fallen, bent people. Something has happened to us, you see? And so that's the first thing that, that comes out. The way, um, there's something deeply wrong with us. Our spiritual DNA has been messed up. The way, I, I like the way Albert Einstein puts it, and I quoted this a couple weeks ago in uh, chapter 1. But I want to bring it back. It's easier to denature plutonium, he says, than to denature the evil spirit of man. Now, this is very hard for us to see and it's hard for us to accept. I don't know about you, but I read Romans and go, really, is it really that bad, Paul? I mean, could you lighten up a little bit? You know, it's like, are you sure it's really that? It's just hard for us to see. And, And the problem is we are so used to comparing ourselves with ourselves it really is hard. Well, you know what we really need? We need like a before and after picture for the human race. You know, have you ever seen this on TV or a magazine? And they have like a before and after picture. You know, before, uh, before this weight loss program and after the weight loss program. Uh, before uh, liposuction, after liposuction. You know, where'd they go? <laughs> no. um, uh, before hair replacement, after hair replacement. 
And so, you have this picture before and after, and you look at that and you go, wow, I can't even believe that difference. Is it, they don't even look the same way, right? And, and so, whether they're true or not, we don't we'll get them. But you know what I'm saying? The pictures are very like, wow. Well, what we really need is we need like a before and after picture of the human race a before the fall and an after the fall picture of the human race. That's what we need to get this. And it's just hard to get this. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to give us a before and after. The, 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 the uh, interesting thing is typically before, you know, in the, in the magazines, before is always worse. After is better. This is reversed, right? The before was better. Remember, here's the thing. We tend to, we tend to compare ourselves with ourselves. And so we get pretty used to like, oh, I'm not as bad as him or I'm not as her or I'm better than that person. But remember, we shouldn't be comparing ourselves with one another. We should be comparing ourselves with God. And, and even when I say that, some of you are going to be going like, oh, that's, him. that's ridiculous. Who could compare themselves with God? That shows you how far we're fallen. Because when we were created, we were created in the image of whom? God. We were like him at one point. We were like him at one point. And so if you want to understand what the human race is supposed to be like, you look at Jesus Christ. You say, that's who the human race was. What would it be like if the whole world was like Jesus Christ? What if you didn't need any WWJD bracelets? Because everyone was like JD, right? Everyone, right, JC. <laughs> Seventeen years of education. No, well, um. <laughs> okay. So you see what I'm saying? What would it be like to live in a world where the? There, can you imagine this? Can you imagine living in a world where there were no locks on any doors? And if you if you told someone, I'm, I'm gonna put a lock in my house. It's like what for? Just, can you imagine a world like that? Can you imagine a world where there was absolutely there was not any police or military, none needed. Can you imagine a world where there was no crime, ever? Can you imagine a world where, where people always put others before themselves? Where there were no poor because anytime they were poor, everyone else got together and took care of them. Can you imagine a world, there was no AIDS, and there was no AIDS problem. Can you imagine a world where uh, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> there, was no, and there was plenty of clean water for everyone in the world? There was no big problem with big spread of diseases through water. Can you imagine a world where government officials always did the right thing? <laughs> I'm really stretching you now. I right? just like. <laughs> Can you imagine what? There is no prejudice. Can you? I could go on and on and on, but at some point you go, you might stop it. No, I can't imagine that. And that shows you how far we have fallen because it's exactly how life would be. So see, we measure ourselves, well, I don't steal. Well, I didn't commit adultery. Remember what Jesus says? Hey, if you want to be like God, it's like you, not only do you not want to have, you, uh, have sex with someone you shouldn't, you don't want to. Can you even imagine a world like that? I can't. I can't, you see? You see, so what happens we, we have fallen so far, we have no idea what it means to be truly human. See, to be truly human means to be like God. That's how we were created, in the image of God. And so we, we've just lost, this, uh, we've lost the perspective. And, and so Paul will put it like this in Romans chapter 7. When we get there, he'll say, and it's a really strong statement, he'll say, you know, the truth about me is in me, in my natural self, there is no good thing. He says, the, in fact, here's what I find is that the, the desire to do the right thing is there, but not the ability to do it. Is that not the human condition? You see? Um, the old theologians, they'd put it like this. They'd say, we sin, or, or they put it like this, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're, center, we're sinners. There's something fundamentally broken. And no amount of education, no amount of money, no amount of self-help books, no amount of personal discipline or government intervention or, uh, or meditation or New Year's resolutions or good intentions will ever change the basic core problem of the human heart. 
You see, you and I, apart from God's work in our life, who we are naturally, we, are, we live in a closed universe of self where we revolve and we, have this, we, we cannot escape the gravitational pull of our own egos. That's what happened to us as a race. And so here in Romans 3, Paul pulls back the curtain and he doesn't pull it back to put us down. He doesn't pull it back because he wants to make us feel bad. He's not trying to be negative. He just wants us to understand that until we understand the true condition of the human heart, we can't get better. You see, we have to embrace the truth about our fallenness before we get better and before we even know how to structure a society or a culture or a family. It has to start with that. Okay, number, number two. Big picture number two goes like this. Truth number two goes like this. Um, this is in opposition to us. It goes like this. God is holy, and he always does what's right. God is holy, and he always does what's right. Um, so the first big picture truth is about us, who we are. The second big picture, picture truth is about God. And so if we are the if fallen, here's the truth about God, he isn't. You see, um, the opposite of being fallen is being holy. See, if, if, if uh, fallenness means being bent, fallenness means being polluted, fallenness has to do with being broken, it has to do with being evil. It has to do with oppression. It has to do with destruction. It has to do with darkness. That's what fallenness is about, okay? So if, if we are fallen, God is not. The opposite of fallenness is holiness, and holiness has to do with everything that is right and good and true and beautiful and courageous and full of life and love. That is what holiness... Holiness is the sum attributes of who God is and is all his perfection, who we were created to be, who we were sh to share those, those attributes. And so, and part of God being holy means he will always do what's right. And since he is the judge of all the earth, it means that when he is a judge, he will never do what's wrong. He will always make the right decision. He's committed to doing what's right and good and true. And what does a judge who is right and good and true do with a fallen race? He holds them accountable, doesn't he? Some of you have gone through divorce court. It's a horrible experience for anyone to go through. And didn't you just pray like crazy that you would get a judge who would do what was right and good and true? And you just pray and you beg God that you would give a judge who was fair and who was right and who would read between the lines and get it right. Do you, do you remember that? Do you remember that, that feeling? you just like, it's, I've dealt with so many single adults going through that thing and just praying, God, would you give us a judge that's, that does what's right and what's good and what's fair, who protects the innocent and holds the guilty accountable. And so the problem, so we come before the, the judge of all the earth and the question we started the day with, with Abraham, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And the answer is yes. He will always do what's right. It's part of being perfect. But catch this. I want you to catch this. In this case, this is not good news for us. It's not good news. Because if the judge of all the earth does what's right, we are in trouble. That's what Paul's been trying to tell us these last three chapters of Romans that we're the fallen race, that we are under what he calls the wrath of God. He says, you're, as a race, you're heading for the judgment. I don't care whether you're a wild child, a good kid, a special kid. It's not looking pretty. We got a problem here. We, we gotta, you need some plea bargaining or something. I mean, you don't want to be there. You don't want to stand there before you because when the wrath of God is revealed, it's not a pretty thing. Do, remember the first Indiana Jones movie? We've got another one coming out. Isn't that exciting? That's just like, praise the Lord. You know, we got some <laughs> Indiana James coming. Yes, you know, all is right in the universe. And, 
Um, of course, he's 95 now, but anyway. Um, he's like, <laughs> stop that. Um, uh, uh, rip. Um, anyway, um, but remember, you remember that first scene uh, in the Indiana Jones scene? You go after the ark, and remember the Nazis have it, and now they're, they're finally opening the lid of that scene. They're opening the lid off that deal, and he's like, he's hiding behind the thing. Like, don't look at it, don't look at it. And they're like, the Nazis, they want the power. And he's like, don't look at it, it's the wrath of God. You know, don't look at it. Such a powerful scene. They got it all wrong. Because when the, when the, the lid came off, you remember how just the wrath that comes out. But you remember how ugly it was. It was like demonic. That's the part they got wrong. But the part they got right was the wrath of God. Like you, you don't want to mess with the wrath of God. When the wrath of God comes out, I mean, it just kind of destroys everything. Remember the start of the day, we start with the story of Abraham, right? And so Abraham negotiates God down to 10 people. You know, if there's only 10 people in ungodly Sodom, would you just, would you just preserve? Yes, I will. He asks the question, will the God of all the earth not do its right? And God doesn't criticize him for that question. You know, sometimes in our life, we're afraid to ask the tough questions. We're afraid God will get mad. He doesn't get mad at Abraham. Will the, will the judge of all the earth do it? He doesn't say it's none of your business. It's not the right thing. He, God assumes, yes, that's an appropriate question to ask. That's a great question to ask. Yes, I will do the right thing. But what was the right thing? There wasn't even 10 people in Sodom that had not been compromised by the tremendous evil. And so the wrath of God came, and it was burned down. The wrath of God came. It was a fearsome thing to behold the wrath of God. And the evil was stopped. The cancer was cut out so it couldn't continue to spread in that part of the world. The judge of all the earth stepped in and said, this far and no more. This evil can't go on anymore. It can't affect any more lives. It can't ruin any more families. It can't destroy any more children. I'm stopping it right here. And the wrath of God, the judge of all the earth who always says what's right, he stepped into Sodom and said, this far and no more. And he stopped it because he always does the right thing. And now it's what Paul's trying to tell us. It's the same is true in our lives that because of our fallenness, uh, Sodom got theirs early because they were so bad. But he says, we're all heading down there. We're all heading down that path before the wrath of God. And this is interesting because in our culture today, we don't like to talk a lot about the wrath of God. We want to talk about the love of God, which I, I'm the first to sign up for. I'd rather talk about the love of God. But should you ever thought of this way? The wrath of God is the flip side of the love of God. Have you ever thought of it that way? Do you realize that if you truly and passionately love what is right and good and true, do you realize that by definition you have to hate what is evil and destructive and oppressive? And part of this we understand. We talked about this a little bit at the very beginning of this series. Part of this we, we understand because you understand how you feel when you read the paper or you see a movie or whatever where the unjust judge gets away or the corrupt politicians get away with it. You pick up the, the paper, paper, you see a movie about the, the, the genocide in Rwanda or you, you see the, the sex trade we talked about and, and you know, women stolen, children stolen and turned into prostitutes. Uh, uh, you read stories of, of uh, you, you look back in our own country's history and the lynching of, of African Americans by KKK. You read these stories and you just like your heart cries out. And it's like, what is, uh, this has got to be stopped. And in fact, one of our biggest criticisms of God as a race is he doesn't step in and stop those kind of things. And yet, what Paul's saying is he is going to step in and stop those kind of things. And it's not good news. Because the evil in the human race, it's not just out there, it's in here. And he's going to hold us accountable for that. And so Paul's been telling us for three chapters now about the wrath of God that's coming on the race. Like, take your Bibles. Look at chapter 1 and verse 18. I just want to do a quick review of where we've been. Chapter 1 and verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress their truth by the wickedness. So chapter 1, wild children of the world, he says the wrath of God's coming. You knew what was right. You knew what was wrong. You blew it off. You did your own thing. The wrath of God is coming. Chapter 2, he turns to the good kids of the race. And look at chapter 2 and verse 5. 
But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up what? You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's what? Wrath. You see that? Okay, look at chapter 3 and verse uh, uh, 5. We read this today. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what should we say? That God is unjust in bringing his what? His wrath. You see, this is the theme of the opening miniseries, the wrath of God. And what do we do with it? You're fallen. I'm fallen. We're all fallen. We're stuck. We're damned. We're doomed. We're standing before a holy God, and we're unholy people. And what are his options? His only options is to be an unjust judge that allows us go and to compromise his integrity and become unholy. You see, what are his options? And we stand there. And this theme of the wrath of God runs throughout the New Testament. Look on your note sheet there. I put some verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Just run through them. The Apostle Paul. Let's see what else Paul says about it. You know, we're always saying we use this Romans as a launching point. Let's see what else he says. Ephesians 2. He says, all of us, no exceptions. We also lived among them, the non-believer, non-Christians, also lived among them at one time. And we gratify the cravings of our sinful nature and, uh, and follow its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, catch this, by nature, we were what? Objects of what? Wrath. You catch that? By nature, born that way. We didn't become that way. We are fallen from the get-go by nature. Look at the next one, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul writing to a bunch of new Christians and the reports of their conversions just spreading like wildfire. And he says, Everyone tells, they tell of how you turn from God to idols, or to God from idols, and to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming what? The wrath. The wrath of God is coming, Paul says. And Jesus rescues us from that coming wrath. Look at the next passage. You say, well, maybe it's just the Apostle Paul. He's just kind of a negative guy. You know, his mom was probably too hard on him, you know, didn't go through potty training well, whatever. He's a little uptight, and, uh, and so it's just, maybe it's just Paul. I'm sure the rest of the guys are, they're good. They love a guy. And so here's a great passage, chapter 3 of John. It's a passage where Jesus is talking to the religious leader, Nicodemus. He talks about you've got to be born again. It's not enough to be born a Jew. It's not enough for the religious ritual. You've got to be born again by God's Spirit, just like we talked about last week. And later on in that passage comes the famous verse that we've probably, most of us have read, uh, John 3.16, it's there in your note sheet. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that great? The love of God, right? Okay, then you skip down 20 verses later, the end of that conversation. And it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's What? God's wrath remains on him. It doesn't come on him, it remains on him. It's been on him his whole life. We're born under the wrath of God. When Jesus comes, he rescues us from the wrath. You see, we're on the wrong ship, we're on the Titanic, it's going down. You better get off the lifeboat, on the lifeboat, otherwise you're going down, you see. And so you say, well, really, is it just, maybe that's just John. You know, maybe it's just, just Jesus. They have an off day or something. And so it's like the book of Revelation, the end of time, Jesus is coming back. And look what it says there in the next one. Then the kings of the earth and the princes and the generals, this is talking about when, the, when Jesus comes back. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man, they hid in caves. And why are they hiding? Why are they hiding? Because Jesus is coming. And among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. This is the same Lamb that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But if you refuse to have your sin taken away, you fall under the wrath of the Lamb. You see? Can you see this, how the love of God and the wrath of God are not opposites, they're flip sides of the same coin. A God who loves what is right and true and just and beautiful, he's going to hate everything that destroys. And if we've got that disease inside of us that makes us a destroyer, you see, something either has to happen or we come under that destruction. And so Paul ends chapter 3. 
he leaves us standing before the judge of all the earth who is sworn to do what is right. And we stand there helpless. We stand there hopeless. We stand there speechless, every mouth closed, is what Paul says. We have nothing less to say. We are doomed and we are damned. And there is nothing that anyone can do. And there's no way we can change ourselves. And there's no way we can change our destiny. And we just need to stand there as a congregation for a moment and feel what that feels like. And we need to remember what that feels like. And we need to embrace that truth about life because if we don't understand it, we're not prepared for what happens next in the courtroom. Let's pray. Lord, these are heavy things that we are talking about. It is hard to look at the disease in our heart called sin and to to embrace that and to be honest about that. God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that in that courtroom that day, the story didn't end there with the sentence being meted out and us being let off for execution. God, even though most of us in this room know this story, most of us know what happens next, for this day, for this moment, we want to remember the truth of the story of the human race so that we can embrace the next chapter and all its amazing rescue that happens in the next episode of the story. And so, God, we, we come to you today, and, and we come, Lord, as people that have fallen, that have been rescued. And if you're here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, i got to tell you, good news is coming. That if you're here, and you sense what I've been saying is true, and you're calling out, the good news is that into that courtroom walked a new defense attorney with a new solution. That there's a way to be forgiven of all crimes against the king. And that can happen for you as you embrace Christ and ask him into your life. Father, we, we pray now as a congregation that you'd give us eyes to see both our fallenness and your deliverance in all of its glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. As we... Uh